listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Welcome to our new season. This week, we are having a University of South Carolina-specific interview and talking to another student organization that works with refugees in Columbia, South Carolina. Gamecocks Aiding Refugees is an organization that builds relationships with refugees in Columbia by tutoring, raising awareness, and doing other service. Your host for this week is Isha Hegde. Welcome to the new season of the Seeking Refuge podcast. My name is Isha, and today I'll be talking to some of the exec members of GARC, or Gamecocks Aiding Refugees in Columbia. I'm super excited for this episode because GARC is actually a club I joined my freshman year here, and it's been really exciting to see it grow. Before I keep rambling, I wanted to let everyone introduce themselves, so we can just go around the Zoom. If you want to say your name, your exact position, and your major, that would be great. Um, my name is Lauren. I am a co-president of GARC, and I am in the BARSC MD program. That's so exciting. Um, my name is Nora. I'm the uh, vice president of member training. I'm a junior and a bio and Spanish major. My name is Natalie Johnson. Um, I'm the Vice President of Communications for GARC, and I'm a Senior Criminal Justice major. Very exciting, guys. Thank you for joining me. So if one of you just wanted to, if you could just, you know, describe GARC in a sentence or two sentences, um, just kind of talk about the club and how you'd introduce it to people if they were coming up to you at like a club fair or something. What does GARC do around campus? So we're basically a student organization focused on building relationships and partnerships with the refugee community in Colombia in and around Colombia, and also or other organizations that seek to assist and work with the refugee populations that are coming into our area and our state. That's super cool. So what are some of the things that you guys have been uh, doing this past year or even, I guess, last year? if you want to just explain some of the projects that you've been working on. So last year, we kind of had to rearrange things a little bit from the previous year, just because of unique challenges with COVID. But we were able to kind of get virtual tutoring started. So basically meaning that we had some students that were able to have a small group and virtually tutor some families that were interested in getting some either help with like homework for elementary kids or kids in high school and those kind of things, or also just practice with English speaking. And we also kind of focused on education last year as well. So during our meetings, which we would have biweekly, we would do like a presentation on something to do with refugee cultures, or we would go into policy, things like that. And we were also lucky enough to have some really great speakers. So an intercultural training, a professor from the College of Social Work, things like that. That's super, super exciting. So I think you kind of touched on this earlier, but do you all want to go around and you can start, Lauren, if that's fine, and kind of talk about how the pandemic has impacted your organization and the work that you guys do with refugees? So the pandemic brought some unique challenges, not only for GARC in our organization, but also for the Carolina Survivor Clinic and other organizations as well. And so that eventually impacted us too. 
But basically, before the pandemic, we were able to go to the houses of the refugee families and spend a few hours there and help them with whatever they needed, whether that was English or homework help, things like that. Then with the pandemic, we were able to kind of get into virtual tutoring, but that also had its challenges in terms of like trying to make it engaging and trying to kind of connect in that same way that we had done before when we were able to do it in person. And I know that some of the other exec members can talk on their experience as well, but that's kind of one of the reasons why we tried to emphasize education and tried to provide some other opportunities that would also be fulfilling during that time when we were kind of struggling a little bit just to match everyone up with a family who was interested in that virtual tutoring aspect. Yeah, sure. And if any of the other exec members uh, want to chime in about kind of how things have changed this year and even um, opportunities that they're looking forward to this year that have had to be modified because of COVID. I agree with Lauren. One thing that we really emphasized in our club was in-person tutoring. And so that was kind of cut back with COVID. Um, But fortunately, we were able to go online a little bit, like she said. And one really good thing, I think, was that we were able to hold our club meetings online and show video clips and other really informative educational tools. And I think that shifting the focus um, a little bit more towards education and advocacy and away from just tutoring really helped us become a well-rounded club at USC. For sure, for sure. Nora, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. Um, I think, yeah, it was a big challenge last year just because a lot of the families that um, really enjoyed like in-person tutoring struggled to do online tutoring. It was really hard to uh, reach out to families and to get like times for them to meet online. Um, So that was a really, really big challenge. And also a lot of them were kids. And so or the family I worked with at least had five kids and they were, you know, full with energy and it was really hard for them, you know, to like, like they, for them, I think the in-person contact with someone was something that they really um, enjoyed and got a lot more out of. So um, yeah, it's been a struggle with, with COVID, but I think, I definitely do think the advocacy part of the organization is something that we want to work more towards because um, I think that's, a big part of um, refugees and like supporting refugees. Yeah, so great answers. And just kind of segueing off of that, you guys said you worked with kids, you know, you virtually tutor kids. So what age group of students do you usually work with when you're volunteering um, through these programs? So are we seeing like more elementary school kids, middle school kids, like even high schoolers? I think it varies a lot for me personally. um, I had a family with three family members and it was two parents and one child and the child was fluent in English. So we helped her with math homework a little, but really focused on educating the parents and trying to teach them English because they really wanted to be able to talk with their peers at work and in their community. So for me, I actually worked more with adults, but I think Nora and Lauren can speak more to the children's ages. Um, Yeah, so I worked with a family of, I believe, seven, because there were five kids and the two parents. Um, The parents didn't really speak English, and so luckily I spoke Arabic, so I was able to communicate with them a little bit, but they were really interested in me helping the kids. I worked with um, another uh, person, and we both kind of tackled the kids, and um, so we helped them with reading and their math homework. 
their science homework sometimes, just whatever they needed help with. Um, that's what we did. And the kids, they ranged from ages like I would say around seven, six or seven to about 12. So wide variety. Yeah, I had a kind of a similar experience to Nora's. They, we had three children and then the parents, the dad didn't really need as much help. He was working a lot. And I think he had really had developed more skills just because of getting out there and being able to learn through his work as well. But we were able to speak with the mom and help her with English a little bit. But the kids, they were a pretty wide range. The youngest was in third grade. The middle was in fourth grade. And then obviously they got older. This is when we were starting. But and then we also had someone who was in high school. And so it kind of varied in terms of what kind of help they might have needed. The younger kids usually had consistent like homework questions and consistent reading that they could do with us. But the older um, kid really, she was able to do a lot of stuff on her own. She knew English really, really well because she had been there for been here for a while. And so she didn't need as much help. And so she would kind of come to us when she needed, but if she felt like she was doing well, she kind of like would skip that week. So it was just at her with what she needed, we were able to help, if that makes sense. So do you guys like follow these uh, like families for like the span of a semester? How long do you work with these families and these kids? So like, for example, Lauren, or actually all of you guys, are you still in contact and helping these specific families yourselves? I can talk about my experience. So I started working with the family my freshman year, so two years ago, and I was able to also do virtual tutoring with the same family last year. And then this year, we're kind of verifying with the Carolina Survivor Clinic if it's okay to reach back out. But my personal feeling is that they would be interested in virtual tutoring again. So we're kind of working the details of that out. But so I've known them for a good amount of time and been able to like get close with them. And I sent like one of the children a book through Amazon and like was able to get permission to send it to their house. And she sent me something at my house when I was at home. And so I feel like we have been able to like really build a strong relationship over the span of a couple years. Okay. That's super great. So again, a question for all of you guys, uh, what challenges do you observe with the children that you work with specifically and even like refugee children who are closer to our peer age group what are some differences that you're noticing or challenges that they deal with that you know obviously individuals who aren't refugees may not understand or have to deal with I think one challenge I saw um like I mentioned I was tutoring two adults and one child who's about 13 was kind of I had to be careful not to throw off the family dynamic because the child was fluent in English and the parents barely spoke English so you really have to remember that um you shouldn't just go to the child and ask them to translate for you because it kind of can like alter the power dynamic and so that's kind of something we would talk about at our meetings and just kind of remember that when you're in their house you kind of need to respect that the parents are above the children and just keep that in mind when you're tutoring nora any comments um actually i had worked with a kid he was around 12 years old he was the oldest of the five kids and he really struggled um, mentally with not being able to, like, I think it frustrated him that he wasn't able to, you know, be at the same level as his peers. And I think he was in sixth grade at the time. So, you know, people 
or sixth graders are like fluent when they read, they can write pretty well. And so he was really, really struggling with, with being able to write um, words um, correctly and, and to be able to read complete sentences. And so for him, I think it was a huge mental challenge that we had to tackle. Um, and he would get frustrated really often because he felt like he was even behind some of his siblings that were younger than him. Um, and so it was something we worked on throughout the, the year and he did improve, but like he just, I think it's, it's important to talk about like the mental exhaustion that it, it has on kids and um, especially the older kids, because when they get to the country, they've already, you know, been somewhere else for so long that they've developed that language. So to learn English, it's almost as difficult for them as it is for their parents. And I, I think, you know, for kids that age, especially like that older elementary school, early middle school age, like fitting in with the peers around you is just such a huge like struggle, even for children who are not in this extremely difficult situation of moving to this completely new country, learning a new language. So I can't, I can't imagine really what these kids, you know, have been through and what they're struggling to deal with, not only educationally, but also in terms of like fostering new friendships and relationships here, which, and I think middle school is already such an awkward time for so many people. So yeah. And Lauren, if you want to touch on that, what are just some struggles that you've seen some of the people that you volunteer with, you know, have to deal with? Definitely things that were similar to what Nora and Natalie mentioned, but just to go in kind of a different direction and something that I noticed and then we had a speaker kind of talk about is we had an older girl and she's obviously in high school thinking about college and higher education. And it was really difficult to kind of explain the process of applying for financial aid in terms of like trying to think about college and how you might be wanting to pay for it to talk about applying to college because there are just so many things that I know when we're in high school and our parents know about them already so it's hard to kind of explain all that and then we had a speaker come and he knew a lot about policy and he was talking about kind of this was our professor from the college of social work and he was talking about how um immigrants who come over and are wanting to go into like health professions like nursing and um, want to go to medical school face some unique challenges and the people the young woman that we worked with she was in high school she had wanted to go to medical school and so already thinking about that I had not realized that there were challenges with getting licensed and even trying to get into a medical school as a refugee, as an immigrant, things like that. So I think that really opened my eyes and showed me that even though there are like personal challenges that are individual to every family, there are some larger challenges that definitely go way deeper. So kind of switching the gears of the discussion a little bit, Um, I wanted to ask how you guys think refugees are viewed on college campuses, especially USC's campus. Um, Refugees, I think, and this is something that, you know, we do talk about on the podcast, are such a huge, like, politicized topic today. Um, And how do you think college students here at USC react when you guys reach out, when you guys table, when you guys just, you know, talk to individuals who aren't familiar with the refugee crisis going on? What's the initial reaction that you get? Do people tend to know a lot or is it 
um, mostly, you know, individuals who don't know so much about the crisis that's going on that tend to join GARC or just reach out at club fairs and stuff like that? I think that it's not a priority on campus. And that's something that we do want to you know, change and have a part in. Um, I think the refugee population as a whole is just overlooked and it's often forgotten. And I think it is really sad that, you know, when politics, you know, come in the middle of of a group of people that are fleeing for their lives, um, it's a politicized issue, but it really shouldn't be because human rights really shouldn't have any issue with politics. And I think that refugees often bear the, the brunt of that misfortune, I guess. And I think that having like advocacy and educational events on campus is something that we are looking to do more about or more on because um, I think the best way that people can learn about uh, refugees is through spread, like spreading awareness, is through tabling, is through different ways. Um, And you can't really help people or a population that you don't know much about. So I think the, the biggest thing is definitely education. And interjecting a little bit Do you guys just unanimously think that college students know a lot about refugees or do you find that it's really surface level here on campus information that people know about the crisis that's ongoing? I think it's really surface level and that they don't really know the details about where different refugees are coming. And in South Carolina, we have a large Burmese um, population of refugees. And I think that when people think of refugees, they tend to think of like certain states like the Syrian refugee crisis is, was really highlighted in the media. And so I feel like they kind of tend to look at what's highlighted in the media and not kind of dive deeper and look at what the population actually is in South Carolina and kind of the law changes in South Carolina. Because I remember a few years ago, South Carolina actually um, lessened the amount of refugees that they were going to let into the state. And for our club, that was kind of like a shock, but no one else really seemed to be up to date on those issues. For sure. Lauren, any comments on that? I do think it's surface level, but I think also that stems from the information that's readily available. So I think the media in general has bouts of really talking about certain issues. And then even though the issue hasn't gone away, the conversation about it dies down a little bit. So like college students, even if you're reading the news, even, even if you consider yourself someone who's up to date on current events, you might have issues that are just more prevalent in one, you know, period than another. So you kind of forget about it or you aren't staying, sticking with the specific story just because maybe that's not something that interests you or you don't feel like it's important to you. And I think that's also an issue that also has, but I think it has different aspects. So it's not that people don't care or don't, aren't interested in it, but that there's other things that are affecting it and you never really know why people might only have surface level or why they might not be seeking out more information. How do you guys think that college students obtain a lot of the information that they get about refugees? I think kind of going back to what I mentioned, like obviously the media, the, you know, popular news outlets are probably like a first line of information. And so if you're someone who's not in GARC and maybe you just follow stories as you see them, maybe on like Apple News or whatever's trending, then that might be all the information you're really getting. I think if you're in GARC, you probably definitely are hearing more stuff from us. And I know before I was co-president this year, I was 
also one of the co-chairs for education last year when we really focused on that. So I would say for me, it was really different because I was trying to find reliable and legitimate information to disseminate to members. So I was really particular about the news that I was getting, the videos that I was showing. Like I definitely didn't want anything that was biased or coming from a point of view that I thought wasn't legitimate or that was going to bring any type of kind of opinion that wasn't like need didn't something that didn't need to be a part of the conversation I really wanted to bring the facts and I know each person is going to have their own opinion but really being conscious of that and wanting to get the news and what's actually happening rather than a version of it, which is always difficult. So not to say that anything, you know, was perfect, but trying to do that. So it's definitely varies among the interest level that you have, but also your purpose in kind of learning that information. And kind of touching on something that you said, how hard is it to get completely unbiased media to share, you know, not only with your club members, but people that are just coming to you guys as advocacy events? Is it hard do you feel like to get unpoliticized unbiased media to share these days i think it really can be i think especially in the us we're in such a polarized politically polarized time right now that a lot of media outlets are really feeding into that as well so i think i really had to try to find things from like the un that i thought were pretty direct representations of what was happening to try to like kind of explain what it means to be a refugee, but then also try to go to news sources reporting on events rather than situations. I think when it becomes situational and you have an opinion piece or like a pundit speaking that the true message can kind of get lost. So I would say pretty difficult, especially if you're someone that's just starting out or someone that's Die Hard and only likes Fox News or only likes NBC, things like that, because you'll probably tend to go to those news sources first. And if they're not giving you information that's unbiased, it can be hard to even know where else to look for it. Great answer. So next question. Uh, Do you think social media is a useful tool for advocating for refugees? So I kind of asked this question because I feel like a lot more people are posting like uh, those little like infographics on their stories. And I've noticed a lot of them centering around refugee crises occurring, which I think is great. Um, But also, like Lauren touched on, can spread some untrue facts or misinformation. So how has social media been useful for GARC? And how have you guys kind of tried to give out reliable sources, reliable facts? Like, do you make your own infographics for the Instagram page? And how do you just interact with your audience on social media? Well, I'll answer your first question. I think social media is a good outlet to, um, you know, diffuse information quickly. I think especially with the younger generation, a lot of people are on Instagram and Twitter and um, I don't know, Snapchat as well. So I think it can be good to like get a lot of information out. I do see that there is a problem with, you know, trends coming and going. Like um, a lot of times people will post on their stories and it'll be like just because it's a trend. And and that's a problem because um, even though it does spread awareness, I think a lot of people do it just to post 
on their story and they don't, you know, look into resources. They don't educate themselves on the topic. They don't, um, you know, look into things that they can do personally to help the situation. Um, and so once it dies down, it, it dies down, but the, the, the crisis is still there. And so I think that's one of the kind of issues with social media is that even though it does help diffuse information, it also, I think is, I don't know, it just lacks action. So for your second question, um, we have an Instagram page and I just took it over because this year is my first year of being VP of communications. And we do make our own infographics. Typically we post about meetings or um, events we're having. We just started a meet the exec so everyone can get introduced to who we are. And we do have a general facts tab so people can go through and just kind of learn the basics. And we're hoping to post more um, general facts or just things that people can repost. But I think like Nora said, you have to be careful because just reposting isn't really enough. You need to really educate yourself and look for what you can do to make an impact because sometimes it will just kind of fade away um, and the crisis is still there. How do you guys or how do you see refugees helping the Columbia community? I just have a question. Do you mean how are refugees like integrated into the Columbia community? What do you mean? Yeah, so uh, this is a very open question. How can you see refugees, I guess, integrating into the Columbia community? Yes, themselves, but also being celebrated in our community overall um, and just kind of being welcomed more in the future. So do you think like Columbia uh, can be increasingly more welcoming to refugees and how can they be integrated into our greater community, I guess? I was going to say for my for the family that I worked with, they were really involved in their church um, and their church was a traditional church, but it also had a um What's it? Sorry, a Sunday school that was for um, refugees. And so a lot of the people that attended that Sunday school actually spoke their language. And so they were able to be surrounded by a community, but they were also part of a larger church congregation. Um, So I think that that was really unique and that was really nice for them. And then they were impacting their community by outreach. And um, my family, one night we went and they were hosting their Sunday school that Friday. And I think it was just nice to see how our community members here and refugees are interacting um, outside of Gamecocks aiding refugees and outside of um, the mission we work with with Dr. Bass. Great answer. Yeah, anyone else who wants to jump? Yeah, I can add. Um, So my uh, refugee family was Muslim, so they were also part of the um, the mosque in the area. So they got to interact with different Muslims in the area. And obviously, a lot of them speak Arabic. So they made friends there. They started I know like the kids made friends with the younger kids that went to the mosque. And that was really cool to see them interact. So I think um, religious like not organizations, but religious like um, places of worship are really great places for families to feel at home because they can often find people that are from the same culture or cultural background as them and often speak the same language. So that's a really easy way for them to connect with people. Um, And I think another way they can connect with, it's hard to connect with um, people that don't speak the language unfortunately because they do have a lot of barriers with language and that's an issue that I think we need to work on and they also a lot of them have problems with transportation so it can be hard for them to find um places to go or events to go to if they don't have the means to transport themselves um so just helping with 
transportation or helping with their language improvement can can help them integrate better into society. And Lauren, if you wanted to add anything, if not, it's all good. I would just second everything that they just said in terms of having a religious community that offers support and offers that opportunity to become begin to become integrated into the community. Sorry, I can't talk. Um, and I think that a lot of them do have really strong religious beliefs. I know the family that we worked with was also very involved in their church. And I believe that the father also even worked at the church. So that was something that they were able to become a part of, not only as like parishioners, as people attending that church, but also as people that had a real investment and stake in that community institution. And finally, the last question, uh, what do you guys want to tell college students or just anyone who listens to our podcast about GARC and about refugees in general? So just any, you know, last minute ending words that you want to state and anyone can jump in. Um, I'll say that a lot of times we get caught up in our work schedule, in our lives, in our schoolwork, and we often forget about what's going on around the world. And I do think it's really important to to connect with groups of people that, you know, aren't like part of our community to reach out to different communities, to learn about different communities, different cultures, and to learn about what's going on around the world. So we can just be better um, community members and better people around the world. Okay, anyone else want to jump in? Um, So I'm going to add a quote. I was at a protest with GARC this year and I saw this quote on a sign and it's actually from um, a Burmese politician and an advocate for democracy. Her name's Aung San Suu Kyi and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, But she said, please use your liberty to promote ours. And I think that just really speaks to that as a community, we have a responsibility to help everyone. I think my only things would that in terms of advocacy, even though we like to talk about how we are trying to be a part of that and act as allies, that it's so important that we're not taking over the conversation. We need to be supporters in terms of supporting those who are actually involved in the issues and give them the platform that they need and deserve. So even though we want to be advocates, we also need to allow those who can to be able to advocate for themselves and especially those who are invested in that to have the voice that they need. So not taking over that. And then just to anyone who's interested in these kinds of issues, in terms of looking on social media, looking for good information, look at multiple sources, take everything that you see with a grain of salt and kind of, you know, in order to become a well-rounded person with a well-rounded, um, amount of knowledge, you really need to look at several different sources and be open to different facts and then use all that you've seen to really interpret situations for yourself. Hi everyone, it's Isha again and I just wanted to say I think the girls ending statements sum this episode up the best. Helping individuals who are part of the refugee community around us starts with giving them a voice and a platform And that's exactly what GARC is helping us to do in our campus and greater Columbia community. That was Isha Hegde talking to Lauren, Nora, and Natalie of Gamecocks Aiding Refugees at the University of South Carolina. 
If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and comment below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or our new USC email, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Refuge Podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode where we will be talking with Mayor Wilmot Collins of Helena, Montana. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next one.